we consider today what might seem for us to be the most irrelevant passage in the entire Bible. While we rejoice that the Bible is inspired, it is God's inerrant Word, we rejoice that it is profitable in all its teaching, we face a sizable gap between us and Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. Uh, In fact, we might even say it's a cavernous gap, to be honest. And yet, I believe that we've been equipped, are being equipped as a congregation. And I would hope that some of you, maybe who've never read Leviticus before, or it's been a long time, or you got partway through and quit somewhere around skin diseases, that in these weeks that we've worked together through the book of Leviticus, that somebody would plop the Bible down in your lap and say, this, Leviticus 13 and 14, this is absolutely useless. And I would hope that you have been equipped to some degree to say, I don't think that's the case. And could begin to describe why Leviticus 13 and 14 matters. Number one, we have learned, for instance, that Leviticus is not a book of obscure rituals, but it is the very pinnacle of the entire Pentateuch. That it is answering the crucial question of these five books, and if we see them together, that Leviticus has this heightened importance in some sense. It is the ultimate consideration in the first five books of the Bible. Secondly, we have learned that this book answers the central question of how can God's people approach Him? How can they approach His holy presence? How can unclean, sinful people come before a holy God? This book we know is answering that question. And then putting that together with what we also know, we've learned that the ritual legislation of Leviticus is a sort of enacted drama that channels us to vital conclusions about God and salvation. So putting two and three together, we know that God's presence has come down from Mount Sinai into this tent of meeting. But the question of Leviticus is how can the tent of meeting become the tent of meeting? How can we approach God here in our sinfulness and in His holiness? Leviticus is working that out but it works it out in something of an enacted drama that channels us to vital conclusions about God and salvation. And so if this person would plop Leviticus 13 and 14 down on your lap and say, what use is that? We're already tracking in a certain way to say, what is here is channeling us. It is pointing us. It is direct, it's, it's kind of walling us in, in grace to think a certain way about God, to track in a certain direction. It doesn't let us out to go on our own and color outside the lines. It's establishing those boundaries and it's pointing us ultimately to the salvation that God intends for us. We learn that Leviticus, in Leviticus that God must be protected from our sinfulness. So as we're answering that question, how can we approach a holy God, we're learning, it's, it's, it's a bit counterintuitive, but He needs to be protected from us. That's a concept we may not perceive at times. God must be protected from you. Because in our sinfulness, in our corruption, we can be, enter into His presence in an inappropriate way that defiles the whole picture of who God is. And we must be protected from Him because of that holiness. In His holiness, there is a danger for sinners. Last week we looked at the teaching of the priests concerning what is holy and common, what is clean and unclean. This is to be their task, to teach the people to think in these terms as they seek to understand how to approach the living God in His holiness. So, as it's laid out here in Leviticus 10, there is the holy realm. That is God's realm. 
And no one can just go waltzing in there. We cannot approach God in His holiness except on His terms. But there's a holy realm. That contrasts to the other realm, one of two. That is what is common or profane. Within the common or the profane, there is the clean and there is the unclean. Picturing it a bit differently, there is the holy and there is the common. There are those two categories. We have to think in those terms. Again, he's channeling us to think a certain way. There's the holy and the common. Now, in the common, doesn't necessarily mean sinful, but common may be clean or it could be unclean. The common, either way, clean or unclean, and that which is clean among the profane, the common, not wholly dedicated to God, but that which is clean can approach the holy God. The clean can become holy, but not the unclean. So there's nothing necessarily sinful about being unclean. But there are ways in which, through this enacted drama, that people can take on ritual uncleanness. And it, it may be sin. But this ritual uncleanness, there's a process to become clean and thus to be ready to approach the living God. Now we find, as the book of Leviticus continues, this is no small matter. Verse 31 of chapter 15, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. And in chapter 10, we've already seen in the narrative of Nadab and Abihu, this is, no, again, no uh, small thing. They drop dead in the tabernacle and they defile it because of their sinfulness. This is serious business, to come into God's presence only on His terms as one who is clean, as the common approaches that which is holy. In Ezekiel chapter 22 we read this as the epitome of Israel's sin within her priesthood. Her priests, writes Ezekiel, have done violence, uh, quoting God, have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. How have they done that? They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have disregarded my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. Not teaching what they are instructed to teach, Leviticus 10, they have now profaned the holy realm of God. Now, last week, we learned that there is in God's instruction to Israel clean and unclean meat. And that reminded us, this, this unique consideration that every meal the Israelites ate required them to think about the holiness of God. Whether or not they were ritually clean and thus able to enter the presence of the tent of meeting, to come with their sacrifices there and approach God. Could they do it? Even what they ate was part of the answer. Now in chapters 13 and 14, we have clean and unclean expanded to include conditions of the skin. I warn you today, we're going to do a lot of reading, not a lot of comment on this reading. It's a lengthy passage. Those of you who have never read through Leviticus, you should be jumping up and down because you're now getting into that text and reading it. But I'd like you to just think about it like it's like an unexplored cave. I mean, there's been people here before, but not many. And not many to get all the way through to the end. I think we can do this, but it's going to take some patience. It is a large gap between us and this section of Scripture. But again, I do this not simply to do it as a ritual, and certainly not to bore you, but you can't know what's in this cave unless you go in there and smell the must and put on a light and see what's hanging from the ceiling, and kind of get in the clamminess of it, and feel it, and sense it, and let your skin crawl. All right, so we're going to try to get crawly skin. If that doesn't make sense to anybody, it probably will soon. But uh, we want to get into it, and hear it, and think about it. What is God teaching us here? 
What is he saying to us? How is he channeling our thoughts a certain way? We face, first of all, in chapter 13, the protocol for diagnosing skin diseases. This is protocol for the priests. And the first issue is just minor skin conditions. Verse 1. Leviticus 13 and verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons the priest, and the priest shall examine the the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the disease area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears to no deeper than the skin and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day, and if in his eyes the disease is checked, and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And if the diseased area has faded, and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an eruption." And he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the eruption spreads in the skin after he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again before the priest. And the priest shall look. And if the eruption has spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous disease. A few comments that will carry us through much of the rest. The Hebrew word translated here leprous, is not what we know as leprosy, which is also called Hansen's disease, a nasty disease. It eats the bones, it numbs the nerves, body parts rub off, get eaten away, and one dies ultimately from this disease. Only recently has there been a cure for this type of leprosy, what we talk about as leprosy in our day. The problem remains in Asia and parts of Africa It was quite rare in ancient Palestine. And as we work our way through, we'll see it's not talking about Hansen's disease, what we know as leprosy. The Hebrew word encompasses things like measles and uh, smallpox and scarlet fever and psoriasis and eczema and these types of skin conditions. It's very broad. So when we're reading leprosy here, we'll even see it applied to houses and garments. Very broad term, not the disease as we know it. We cannot determine what they're talking about in a lot of these cases. So we're not going to spend our time identifying this is that condition, this is that condition, and it doesn't really help us anyway. So just understand that about leprosy. Secondly, the priests. They did not serve as physicians or medics. They operated more like public health inspectors. Their task was not to seek a cure for skin disease. Their task was simply to identify it and say that's it. They're tasked merely with determining if a skin disease or condition rendered one ceremonially unclean and thus unfit to enter into the presence of God. They're dealing with the worship of God here. Now think of it from the standpoint of the common Israelite. Here we need to kind of smell the cave a little bit. You want to approach God at the tent of meeting, and here's this priest looking at some skin condition you have. In fact, you need to come and show him your arm. Or pull up your robe a little bit on your leg and say, I don't know what this is. And he's reading your skin. I mean, he's he's looking at it and examining you. It's got to be a little bit unnerving on some level. I mean, we're wrapped in skin. It's an amazing thing. And how far we could go right now with the medical wonder that skin is. And the danger that skin is to us on some level in a fallen world. But this would have been something kind of like going through the security line at the airport, you know, standing there and here it is, the scanner going, are you seeing anything there? Well, there, there you know there's nothing wrong with you. But here, there's this real careful attention to your body as you come into the presence of God. Why does a skin infection, let's say, why does that render one unclean? The simple answer to it is this simple line. 
Adam and Eve had perfect skin. Adam and Eve had perfect skin. I, I don't believe there's a blemish on them or a problem that they bore whatsoever. Their skin was perfectly pure. That's not our situation, is it? Because of skin, or because of sin, our, because of skin, our sin is, <laughs> because of sin, our skin is corrupted. And we don't think a lot about this because we have medications and doctors and all kinds of things that can treat skin issues. And I've had a few, a few things cut off and a few things applied and all that. It's just an irritation. I mean, it can get serious. But for most of us, we just deal with a brief irritation. They had to overcome those skin issues without the medication. And so for them, this was a, this was, this was a big deal. It's going on all the time. There's these things that crop up on your skin. And as you come to God, that has to be considered. So some of these more mild conditions are considered. As we come to verse 9, we see chronic skin diseases considered. Verse 9, When a man is afflicted with a leprous disease, he shall be brought to the priest. And the priest shall look. And if there is a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and there is raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic leprous disease in the skin of his body, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not shut him up, for he is unclean. And if the leprous disease breaks out, that's not shut him up. He, it's not, he doesn't need to determine anymore. It's, he's unclean. Verse 12, if the leprous disease breaks out in the skin so that the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look, and if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. It has all turned white, and he is clean. Don't know what it means, but something in that, this isn't a danger. Verse 14, but when raw flesh appears on him, he shall be unclean, apparently eating into the flesh in some way. Verse 15, and the priest shall examine the raw flesh and pronounce him unclean. Raw flesh is unclean, for it is a leprous disease. But if the raw flesh recovers and turns white again, then he shall come to the priest, and the priest shall examine him. And if the disease has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce the diseased person clean. He is clean. He can approach God. We come then to boils and scars and burns, something else that can happen to our wrapping. Verse 18, if there is in the skin of one's body a boil and it heals, and in the place of the boil there comes a white swelling or a reddish white spot, then it shall be shown to the priest. And the priest shall look, and if it appears deeper than the skin and its hair has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease that has broken out in the boil. But if the priest examines it and there is no white hair in it, and it is not deeper than the skin, but has faded, then the priest shall shut him up seven days. And if it spreads in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a disease. But if the spot remains in one place, does not spread, it is a scar or boil, and the priest shall pronounce him clean. Or when the body has a burn on its skin, and the raw flesh of the burn becomes a spot, reddish white or white, the priest shall examine him. And if the hair in the spot has turned white, and it appears deeper than the skin, then it is a leprous disease. It has broken out in the burn, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease. But if the priest examines it, and there is no white hair in the spot, and it is no deeper than the skin, it but has faded, the priest shall shut him up seven days, and the priest shall examine him the seventh day. If it is a spreading in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease. But if the spot remains in one place and does not spread in the skin, but has faded, it is a swelling from the burn, and the priest shall pronounce him clean, for it is the scar of the burn. And somebody had to do their homework to be able to detect these things and understand. At verse 29, we come on to scalp and facial conditions. When a man or woman has a disease on the head or the beard... That is, 
leaching into the beard, apparently. The priest shall examine the disease, and if it appears deeper than the skin, and the hair in it yellow and thin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is an itch, a leprous disease of the head or the beard. And if the priest examines the itching disease and it appears no deeper than the skin, there is no black hair in it, then the priest shall shut up the person with the itching disease for seven days. And on the seventh day, the priest shall examine the disease if the itch has not spread and there is in it no yellow hair and the itch appears to be no deeper than the skin, then he shall shave himself, but the itch shall he shall not shave. And the priest shall shut up the person with the itching disease for another seven days. And on the seventh day, the priest shall examine the itch. And if the itch has not spread in the skin and it appears to be no deeper than the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the itch spreads in the skin after his cleansing, then the priest shall examine him. And if the itch has spread in the skin, the priest need not seek for the yellow hair. He is unclean. But if his eyes, but if in his eyes, in the priest's eyes, the itch is unchanged and the black hair has grown in it, the itch is healed and he is clean and the priest shall then pronounce him clean. When a man or a woman has spots on the skin of the body, white spots, the priest shall look, and if the spots on the skin of the body are a dull white, it is leucoderma that has broken out in the skin. He is clean. His skin has a problem, but it's not disease. It's not going to spread, and he can enter the presence of God. This leucoderma is patches of skin that turn completely white. So sometimes white's a good thing, sometimes white's a bad thing in here, and it's hard for us to decipher it all, and we don't necessarily need to. At verse 40, God speaks of baldness. If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald. Praise God. He is clean. That would have been really bad. And if a man's hair falls out from his forehead, he has baldness of the forehead, he is clean. But if there is on the bald head or the bald forehead a reddish-white diseased area, it is a leprous disease breaking out on his bald head or his, on his bald head or his bald forehead, then the priest shall examine him. And if the disease swelling is reddish-white on his bald head or on his bald forehead, like the appearance of the leprous disease in the skin of the body, He is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest must pronounce him unclean. His disease is on his head. There's reasons a hair falls out. Some are clean reasons. Some are unclean. Now the next words in the text really are heart-wrenching. They're sad. I don't know how else to read them. Verse 45, the leprous person, this person with certain type of skin disease, who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Why do you rip your clothes and dishevel your hair, not tying up the corners of the hair, the long locks on the side, but letting them loose? And why do you cover your mouth and cry out, unclean, unclean? These are signs of mourning, at least the clothing and the hair. They're signs of mourning. The person is to play the part, in a sense, and it probably didn't take a lot of play acting. They needed to play the the part of one who is in mourning. It's like a living death. They're sad, even tragic words when you think about the human cost and the relational pain. It's just kind of hard to hear. This person set outside the camp who nobody can really get close to or they're going to make them unclean and they can't approach the living God. A choice has to be made, a hard one. 
It's a vital reenactment, I think, of Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden. Sin has corrupted relationships. It's corrupted community. And as Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden of Eden in discipline, in like manner, in some sense, there's an, a reenactment of that here is this one with the skin disease is set outside. Not because this person has sinned personally, necessarily, but because we are simply all sinners. And this is a serious condition. So outside the camp, thinking back on this graphic of our, of our holy, common, profane, clean, unclean divisions, this individual is set outside. They may have been a holy individual, a priest committed to the service of God. It might have been someone who was clean in every other way, but they wake up one morning and there is this disease and through the protocols they learn, I'm unclean. And they take whatever they need and they head outside the camp and they're isolated out there. Outside the camp means they're not quarantined in their house. This keeps them from spreading the disease or the ritual uncleanness to others within the house. But worst of all, this individual on the outside circle is separated from God. Separated in some sense from the worship of God. This person is wrapped in corruption. He displays the results of the fall in a unique way. And for ritual purposes then, he fails to reflect the wholeness and life. Instead, reflecting at this moment in his experience, corruption and death. Such a condition did not fit one for the holy and pristine presence of God. So just as a sacrifice had to be whole... So a worshiper had to be whole on some level in order to enter into the presence of God. And we might naturally respond here, this isn't fair. It's not their fault. But in the context of that day, there was certainly good reason for it. Quarantine was the only way to stop infectious disease. God in His mercy to His people, setting these people outside, as hard as that was individually, it was loving for the family of Israel to withstand diseases that would be infectious. There are people still alive today in in the U.S. who remember in rural America what was known as pest houses, short for pestilence or pestilential disease. And these houses would be out in rural areas and the people in them were the people who had some sort of disease. And they had to be quarantined there because there was no other way to treat them but to set them aside and hope that others didn't catch it and hope that it ran its course. But this is how in rural areas in this nation not so long ago tuberculosis and cholera and smallpox and typhus were treated. There wasn't a treatment. You just had to separate people out there. So we have to think back and bridge the gap to their setting. Quarantine protected families. Quarantine protected the nation. But God uses this means not only to protect His people, but to dramatize the reality of human corruption. So on the one side, how blessed is Israel to have a God who knows skin. And He can say to them, this is no big deal. This is a big deal. Set them outside. But on the other hand, a God who understands what a picture this is of our corruption. The only reason our skin doesn't work like it should is because we are sinners. We are in a fallen world that has been corrupted by sin. I I, I was thinking as we were being led this morning and words were being stated to transition to songs and songs were being sung and scriptures being read, just in all of that, you hear the number of times we talked about uncleanness and our sinfulness. Now, somebody from this culture coming in and hearing this kind of conversation says, "Wow, well, you're a bunch of negative people. Everybody's a sinner. If we're being channeled by Leviticus, we know we're kind of on track here. Everything they ate, every condition that comes on their skin, they have to think in terms of clean and unclean, holy and common. They just have to think that way all the time. Now there's a way of just being foreboding about sin and and misery and all of that. We're not tracking there and we'll make that clear. But they had to think about this very, very carefully. 
how we are separated from a holy God. Now, in the cave, all right, we're looking around. We're going, I'm getting ready to get out of here. But uh, we're looking around, and, and we're saying, in this feel of Leviticus 13, there's something here that's hit you that you don't even probably know. You don't at least haven't recognized it. It's a certain smell or a certain feeling that you have that these words are directing us a certain way. Have you noticed up to this point, and nothing's going to change as we go from this point, there's nothing about healing. There's nothing about what to do to help the person get over the skin disease. This is a deafening silence in contrast to Israel's pagan neighbors where there was all sorts of mystical, magical rituals to try to heal the person. If we throw these rocks this way and we cut up in this liver and we, we knock this bird off and we do this and we do that, we'll get you better, we hope. Nothing. Not a word. The pagans sought to appease the gods and manipulate the gods to heal, but we find none of that here. The priests merely diagnose. They merely look at what's right or wrong. They don't heal. And the message through it is because only God heals. Now that, that doesn't mean there's no means. It doesn't mean that there's no physician or there's no medicine or there's no way to treat it. But it means that at the end of the day, it's not through ritual, mysticism, magical practices that we find healing. Only God can heal. He alone is the great physician, not even the priests of Israel. So the question that we're learning to ask, how are we being channeled by this narrative? What is Leviticus ultimately teaching us? How is it directing us within the guidelines that God has laid out in His Word? What is it saying to us? Being in this cave and reading these words is setting us up for what is to come. And what is to come... Um, is this. Jesus, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, if you will, you can make me clean. Now we think of this in light of Luke 13 and 14, Leviticus 13 and 14. No priest could make anyone clean. They couldn't even touch the guy or they'd be unclean. But he sees something in Jesus. He understands this to be the prophet of God. He understands this one to be unique. Though his understanding is... He says, if you will. He, he, he doesn't even say, if you're able. He says, if you will. And these words then are stunning in light of the Old Testament text. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. A proof of what? A proof of who this was. He reached out and he touched him. By this time in Jesus' ministry, by this day, the priest had determined that no one could greet or touch a person with an infectious skin disease. Lepers were widely regarded as vile sinners who were under God's judgment, and the only right response was to reject them the way that God rejected them. This was the teaching of the day, largely. So if the wind was at your back and you were coming upon a person with a skin disease, you could come within six feet to tell them what they needed to know, to throw something at them to keep them alive. Six feet. No hug. No touch. The wind was at the leprous person's back coming at you. You had to be 150 feet away. 
These were the rules. Priests never touch a diseased person, and if they have any business with them, it certainly is not exercising the power to heal. But if you're able, says the leper, you can make me clean. And Jesus touches him. He touches him. And he heals him. The priests of that day did not permit Jesus to even talk to this man, unless under certain circumstances, let alone to touch him. But to touch him would render Jesus ceremonially unclean. Unless, unless he healed the diseased person, which is what he did. Jesus demonstrates here his divine power. Through the centuries, Israel is being taught, you don't heal, the priests don't heal, God heals. This this priest heals. Jesus demonstrates His divine power. Only God heals and Jesus heals. And so all along these quarantine people are steering us to Jesus, to who He is and to His relevance as the great priest who heals His people. It's powerful evidence of God in flesh. Well, we enter then upon protocol for identifying infected material. We're coming out of the cave. Hang in there. Verse 47. When there's a case of leprous disease in a garment, so of course it's, it's clearly not like a skin disease as such, but it's, it's spreading there in that garment, whether a woolen or a linen garment, in warp or woof of linen or wool or in a skin or in anything made of skin, if the disease is greenish or reddish in the garment or in the skin or in the warp of the woof, or in any article made of skin, it is a case of leprous disease and it shall be shown to the priest. So what's a warp and a woof other than a really fun thing to say? But you saw it. I had a, these slides out of order. You saw that earlier. The warp is, is heading one direction as it is woven. The fabric is woven. And the woof is going the other direction, winding it all together so that the garment holds together. Of course, they're making these things uh, uh, largely by hand. The warp and the woof. Uh, Most likely what's referred to here then is the different types of yarn that were used for the warp and the woof. On this illustration you can see they just look a bit different uh, in whichever direction they're headed. These uh, materials would be prepared differently and stored separately. And so as they're prepared differently and thus stored separately, one might become corrupted and so it's going to be in that one direction that the corruption is seen. Obviously, it means it's very difficult to treat the garment. Verse 50. And the priest then shall examine the disease and shut up that which has the disease for seven days. Then he shall examine the disease on the seventh day. And if the disease has spread in the garment, in the warp or the woof or in the skin, whatever he... whatever be the use of the skin, this is, this is an animal skin, the disease is a persistent leprous disease, it is unclean, and he shall burn the garment, or the warp, or the woof, the wool, or the linen, or any article made of skin that is diseased, for it is a persistent leprous disease, it shall be burned in the fire. You might be able to pull out the one direction of the fabric and burn that and re, uh, re, re-tie it, but uh, reweave it. Verse 53, if the priest examines if this disease has not spread in the garment, in the warp, or the woof, or in any article made of skin, then the priest shall command that they wash the thing in which is the disease, and he shall shut it up for another seven days, and the priest shall examine the diseased thing after it has been washed. And if the appearance of the diseased area has not changed, though the disease has not spread, it is unclean. You shall burn it in the fire whether the rot is on the back or the front, whether it's eaten into the front or the back, doesn't matter, burn it. But if the priest examines, if the diseased area has faded after it has been washed, he shall tear it out of the garment or the skin or the warp or the woof. Then if it appears again in the garment, in the warp or the woof, or in any article made of skin, it is spreading, you shall burn with fire whatever has the disease. But the garment or the warp or the woof or any article made of skin from which the disease departs, then you have... When you have washed it, it shall then be 
washed a second time and be clean. This is the law for a case of leprous disease in a garment of wool or linen, either in the warp or the woof or in any article made of skin to determine whether it is clean or unclean. That's 59 being then, of course, the summary statement there. But back to Leviticus here, uh, God did heal people of skin diseases. As we think here on Leviticus, he heals through Jesus, but he does here in Leviticus as well, and, and this time as well. It's just not in the same way. And obviously there can be individuals that God so chooses to bring healing, but that again is not the work of the priest. As we come to chapter 14, so that we don't go back into this cave next week, I will keep moving quickly, but we have cleansing for people with skin diseases. And this we have to consider because it's so vital to the conversation. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Some of its blood sprinkled in the water probably the hyssop used in some sort of brushing motion. Verse 7, And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water and he shall be clean. And after that he may come into the camp but live outside his tent seven days. And on the seventh day he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard, his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair and then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and he shall be clean. And on the eighth day, he shall take two male lambs without blemish and one ewe lamb, a year old with blemish, without blemish, and a grain offering of three tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil and one log of oil. And the priest who cleanses him shall set the man who is to be cleansed. And these things, and these things before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt offering along with the log of oil and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. He shall kill the lamb in the place where they kill the sin offering and the burnt offering and the place of the sanctuary for the guilt offering like the sin offering belongs to the priest. It is most holy. This all connecting to the earlier part of the book and these offerings for atonement, for forgiveness. Verse 14, The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering, and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. We saw this with what? The consecration of the priest. The whole body symbolized in these ways to hear the word of the Lord, to walk in his way, and to do his bidding. This one is wholly cleansed. Verse 15, then the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand and dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand and sprinkle some oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And some of the oil that remains in his hand, the priest shall put on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot on top of the blood of the guilt offering and the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand... uh, sign of consecration, he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed. Then the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. The priest shall offer the sin offering to make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness, and afterward he shall kill the burnt offering. The priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. The priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be clean. Certainly in the freeing of the bird, there would be a sense of the freeing of the individual. And certainly in this protocol, there would be a sense of consecration to God. There's a different protocol in God's mercy for those who are impoverished, verse 21, 
If he's poor and cannot afford so much, then he shall take one male lamb for a guilt offering. He still needs to bring that lamb, and it's costly to be waived to make atonement for him. And a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and a log of oil and two turtle doves or two pigeons, whichever he can afford. That is, they're cheaper. The one shall be a sin offering and the other a burnt offering. And on the eighth day he shall bring them for his cleansing to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. And the priest shall take the lamb of the guilt offering and the log of oil. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. In consecration again. Verse 25, he shall kill the lamb of the guilt offering. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. And the priest shall pour some of the oil into the palm of his own hand. It shall sprinkle this with the right finger. Some of the oil that is in his left hand seven times before the Lord. And the priest shall put some of the oil that is in his hand on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot in the place where the blood of the guilt offering was put, just as was the case with the more wealthy individual. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed and to make atonement for him before the Lord. And he shall offer of the turtle doves or pigeons whichever he can afford one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering, along with grain offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for him who is being cleansed. This is the law for him in whom is a case of leprous disease who cannot afford the offering for his cleansing. Now, from the cleansing of individuals with sacrifice, The text moves to identifying infected houses. Putting it all together, garments, houses, skin, everything in your life can become corrupted, unclean, and separate you from the entrance to the Lord, even your house. Verse 33, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession, that is mold, mildew, that type of thing, Verse 35, then he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, there seems to me to be some case of disease in my house, and the priest shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the disease, lest all that is in the house be declared unclean. Talk about inconvenient. And afterward, the priest shall go and see the house, and he shall examine the disease, and if the disease is in the walls of the house with greenish or reddish spots, and if it appears to be deeper than the surface, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house, shut up the house seven days, and the priest shall come again on the seventh day. And look, if the disease has spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take out the stones in which is the disease and throw them into an unclean place outside the city. And he shall have the inside of the house scraped all around. The plaster that they scrape off, they shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city. And they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones. And he shall take other plaster and plaster the house. So it can possibly be repaired just like a garment. But if the disease, verse 43, breaks out again in the house and he's taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, then the priest shall go and look. And if the disease has spread in the house, it is a persistent leprous disease in the house. It is unclean. And he shall break down the house, its stones, timber, and all the plaster of the house, and he shall carry them out of the city in an unclean place. Moreover, whoever enters the house shall while it is shut up, shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever sleeps in the house shall wash his clothes, and whoever eats in the house shall wash his clothes. Not a big deal. It's not anything connected to sin here, just a fallen world. And there's places today that have to get knocked down because of mold and the like. Verse 48, if the priest comes and looks, and if the disease is not spread in the house after the house was plastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean, and for, for the disease is healed. And for the cleansing of the house, he shall take two small birds with cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop, and shall kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water, and shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet yarn along with the live bird and dip them in the blood of the bird that was killed and in the fresh water, sprinkle the house seven times. Thus he shall cleanse the house with the blood of the bird and with the fresh water and with the live bird and with the cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn. And he shall let the live bird go out of the city into the open country. So he shall make atonement for the house and it shall be clean. 
This is the law for any case of leprous disease, for an itch, for a leprous disease in a garment or in a house, and for a swelling or an eruption or a spot to show when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law for leprous disease. Come on out with me. Come out of the cave and breathe some fresh air. The way I understand how weird this is as a sermon. But what we've got to understand too is that in our Western thinking, we tend to read shaving off everything we don't need. We're looking to get to the heart, the nub of the issue, what matters. And we don't need this, and we don't need this. We don't need this repetition, certainly. Yeah, we got the point. Same ritual with the house as with the person as with the garment. We get that. And if they're poor, same ritual except a few less sacrifices. We're weeding out, weeding out. And that's not bad. It's just a way of thinking. For the Israelites, this was a saturation that sent a message. And the repetition itself was embraced and appreciated for what it was saying. What it was saying was reminding them again that to your very the, the, the inches of your very skin, the holiness of God is an issue. And if you're in one of these conditions, you're running to that section that applies to you and you're reading it with some care. And you're applying it through the priest with some care. And are we ever thankful we're standing outside the cave and breathing fresh air? We live in a wonderful time. Medically, where some of these isolation, quarantine issues are just not part of what we deal with, but we're living in a wonderful time on this side of the cross. And so the drama here, if we will just take it in for one hour together as a congregation, And as we take that drama in, and as we're learning to be steered by the Bible to think the way that we should think, the drama reminds us yet again that sacrifice is the avenue to cleansing. Even where there's not personal sin here, there needs to be in some cases cleansing through sacrifice. A substitute sacrifice shedding blood in my stead to purify me so that the way is paved to enter God's presence in worship. I'm being directed there. The walls are there guiding me down to think that way. This sacrifice escorts me from outside the camp, away from the presence of the Lord. And it fits me for His presence. In a sense, the curse is reversed by the sacrifice. I'm channeling down these lines of thought. I can't get out of that. I don't want to get out of that. But this ritual points us that way. And in fact, it connects to something very deep within each one of us. We feel very dirty. We feel at times very unclean in our sinfulness. Sometimes in ways that have nothing to do with what we've done. Sometimes just who we are is corrupt. Just our very weakness, our very inefficiencies and folly is sin. And it's in the warp and the woof of our skin. It's in every member of our house, this weakness. And then there is that uncleanness where our skin crawls with our own rejection of God's law, our breaking of His commands our incapacities to love as He calls us to love. We're all unclean on this level. We are all set outside the camp on this level. But Jesus is our purification. He is that sacrifice to which this all points. As He touched the leper in Luke 5, He can touch your life and He can make it clean from the inside. Only God can heal. Jesus touches this man and heals him with the power of God and then says to him what? Don't tell anybody because the story's not done yet. And it's not until he rises from the dead that his deity can be fully confirmed. There's others who were used by God to touch lepers and heal them. But this priest 
draws you from outside the camp and touches you in your sinfulness and you are clean. If you say, and I come here today and I just feel like I'm wrapped in sin. I feel dirty to the core of my being. I feel corrupted by what I've done, by what others have done. If you come in that corruption, I want to say to you today, there is good news. In the grace of God, He reaches to us in our uncleanness and He cleanses of sin. If you have come to know Christ as your Savior and you've said, I've turned to this sacrifice, this one who has died for me, And He's paid that penalty. He's touched me in my uncleanness. I have trusted Christ as my Savior to pay the penalty of my sin. I know that He's risen from the dead. If that is you, then let's rejoice today and say again to our own souls, Jesus died to atone for your sin. He died to render you unclean. You are precious in His sight. You are. You are. Precious in His sight. He's touched you outside the camp. And He has said, I will be clean. This chapter teaches us, these chapters teach us to rejoice. Jesus does business outside the camp. He touches, He heals corrupt souls. He goes outside there where we languish in our sin and our weakness and He bears the full weight of the isolation and rejection and He drains that cup dry. When He says on the cross, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? God forsaken by God. Something we cannot fully understand, but what we know is that He suffered the ultimate isolation from the Father and alienation so that we never need to. This person outside the camp, we pity. We can't imagine the horror of what it meant to live out your life there and die there. We cannot run a universe and we can't tell God how to teach us. But through the centuries, He saw fit to continue to steer us to consider the plight outside the camp of uncleanness and sends at exactly the right time the Savior who takes us in our uncleanness goes outside the camp to pay the penalty of sin and as priest and sacrifice brings us near to God. As Jesus touches out, reaches out and touches that leper, we've read about today. He evidences the coming of the new era where the law is fulfilled by Christ. And now on this side of the cross, we do not separate from the diseased any longer. We reach them in their weakness. We proclaim to them this message that this new day has come. This new Savior has come. Jesus wrapped Himself in our skin, taking on our flesh that we might be wrapped in His righteousness and take on His holiness. This is the the priest of a different order. This is a priest who not only declares the state of our alienation from God, but who pays the penalty, renders us clean, ushers us into the divine presence on His authority as reconciled sinners for whom there is now no condemnation, but only eternal fellowship with a holy God. how rich we are, and how much the richer by spending a few moments in these chapters. Let's pray. Lord, our heart grieves for a vile culture, the wickedness that surrounds us is mystifying at times and yet to be expected. I pray that we'd find ourselves outside the camp with sinners, pointing them to the light, like one leper showing another where Jesus is. I pray that you'd help us to that end, that we'd not scream at the darkness, but that we'd go into it with the candle of the gospel. 
And I pray, Father, that we would rejoice in what Jesus has done. And we would celebrate the cleanness that we enjoy in Him in a fresh and new way today. Drawing to Yourself any who know You not as Savior and bringing that joy of heart and soul and that rest in the standing of no condemnation that's in Christ. May we feel it like we've not felt it before. As we come out of this musty cave and we sit in it for a while, it reminds us of the beauty of the splendor of Christ. And we thank you in his name.